invite you to turn with me this morning to John chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 20, and we'll read through verse 26 of John chapter 12. And we're continuing the thoughts that we uh, began last week, which were really kind of a follow-up to the thoughts that we've been looking at for the last, the previous three weeks. We were considering the idea of a, a tree without roots cannot bear fruit. And we spent three weeks looking at the different root systems that God has given to us because He wants us as His people to bear fruit. And as Jesus told His disciples on the night that He was betrayed, He wants us to bear much fruit. And it is in the bearing of fruit that we are His disciples. And so last week we began turning our attention to what what does the Christian life look like that bears fruit. What is that fruit-bearing Christian life? Beginning at verse 20 of John 12, we read this. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was was from Bethsaida of Galilee, And asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew told Philip, and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world would keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Most of us have probably been familiar for some time with Jesus' words here in this text. Specifically those where He says that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls and dies, it will bear much fruit. Few of us, however, are probably familiar with the context. Familiar with the context in which Jesus makes this statement. And I want to look at that context for just a moment. We find this statement of Christ in the context of those who are pursuing Him. There's a pursuit of Jesus that's going on. The text tells us that there were certain Greeks who had come to worship. That phrase, certain Greeks, was in reference to a specific type of Greek. There were really two types of certain Greeks. Both were 
non-Hebrew people who were proselytes. They had, to some extent, been converted to the Jewish faith. There were the proselytes of the gate, as they were called. And then there were proselytes of righteousness. Proselytes of righteousness was in reference to those who, had, who were born Greek, but had fully converted to the Hebrew religion. Both of these would be considered God-fearing people. They recognized in the Hebrew religion something of truth, something of substance. They saw in its moral law code something that they could bank upon. These are people outside of Israel, outside of the people of God. These are people that we would call the world. Those on the outside. To some extent, having been brought in. It's interesting also that they come to Philip. Philip is a Greek name. Earlier in John's account of the Gospel, we have it confirmed that, of course, as it says here, he's from Bethsaida. But earlier in the, in the account here, in fact, in John chapter 1, we find that that's actually the town of Andrew and Peter. Presumably, they knew each other. Presumably, they were friends, or at least acquaintances. When Jesus goes and calls them to Himself, He's calling people here, these three, who are from a common town. And Philip bears a Greek name. You'll remember from John chapter 1, that it was Philip who went to Nathanael and said, we think we found the Messiah. We think we found the one that the prophets had foretold. The one who has come to fulfill the law. We think we found Him. He's Jesus from Nazareth. And it was Nathanael who said, Philip, really? Nazareth? Rockmark? You really think the Messiah is coming from Rockmark? What good has ever come out of Rockmark? Um, and and it, in response to Nathaniel, it's Philip who then says, just as Jesus had said to, I believe, to Andrew and Peter earlier, come and see. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's merely coincidental. I think it's a, uh, I do think it's a bit of irony in the text. I think it, uh, it's a point of extreme interest that it is Philip who tells Nathaniel, come and see, inviting us into the text, inviting Nathaniel into the life of discipleship. Come and see if this is him. And it's then Philip who these certain Greeks approach and they say, we have come and we want to see Jesus. Wouldn't it be um, wouldn't it be an exciting thing If the church had the world knocking on its door 
on Sunday morning saying, we want to come and see Jesus. Here are these Greeks who've come to Philip to see Jesus. Jesus' response as Philip then goes to Andrew says, hey, uh, we got these guys. They're uh, they don't see Jesus. What do you think? They then go to Jesus. Jesus, there's some certain Greeks here that want to see you. Jesus' response to them is very interesting. I don't read this as Jesus scolding the disciples. I don't read this as Jesus scolding the Greeks. I think I think Jesus' eyes are set upon Jerusalem. Jesus' eyes are set upon the cross that awaits him. He says, The hour has come that the Son of Man, how he most often referred to himself, should be glorified. When we consider what Jesus says here, and we line that up against the fruit-bearing Christian life, we find that that fruit-bearing Christian life, according to Jesus Himself here, is first of all, a life that is dead. That ought to shock us. A life that is dead. It's a bit of a paradox. I think Jesus Intention is to shock his disciples. It is to wake them up. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, loses its life, it will remain alone. I don't think I'll ever forget in seminary, Dr. Yuri, in our systematic theology class, saying that love always requires death. To love someone is to die. To truly love them is to die. Because to love someone is to put to death some self-interest. Whether it's loving a child and therefore sacrificing some of life's conveniences, or whether it is loving a spouse. Whether it's loving a friend or a co-worker. There is always a, a, a manner and a level of, of death that comes with true, biblical, God-oriented, other-oriented love. Amen. The fruit-bearing Christian life is a life that is dead. This concept of dying to self, this death to myself, death to my interests, death to my wants, my wishes, it's truly an archaism, but it is in desperate, desperate need of rediscovery. When Jesus calls us to Himself, He calls us to come and die. When He calls us 
into the life of discipleship, He declares to us there is a cross awaiting us. And we then must die to ourselves and take up that cross and follow Him. It is only in our death that the world can be redeemed. It was, I believe, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who said the the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. And we can extrapolate that point and say it is the seed of the world is the death of disciples. The fruit bearing Christian life, the, the Christian life that does bear fruit is that life which is dead. Because it is that life which has died to self that can live for others. It is that life which has died to self that is enabled to love God and to love one's neighbor, even one's enemies. Because love is not a feeling. Love is not a passion. Love is not butterflies. In fact, sometimes it is love that causes butterflies because what we're called to do is not fun or comfortable. To love someone is to care more about their interests than you care about your own. Because the life that loves is a life that is dead. It has no more self-interest. And Jesus says that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless it decays in the dirt, unless it falls to the soil and begins to rot, it remains alone. The fruit-bearing Christian life is secondly a life that is sacrificial. Because the fruit-bearing Christian life is not a life that is simply taken. It is a life that is given. It is sacrificed. It's interesting that here Jesus begins to turn His disciples' attention toward His glory. Up to this point, Jesus has been telling His disciples and John has been telling His readers His hour had not yet come. In fact, when the crowds surround Him to kill Him, He's able to skirt away because His hour had not yet come. But here He says His hour has come. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And it's interesting what Jesus equates His glory to is not something of majesty. It's not something of beauty. It's not something that's delightful to look upon. He equates His glory to the cross. The hour of His glory is the hour in which He pours out His blood for the world. The most glorious action imaginable is that of self-surrender. We see it even in the movies. We see it 
on television. In fact, Lindsay and I were kind of unwinding a little bit last night. I knew that I was going to be up till 2 or 3. And I said, I've got to unwind before that begins. And so we sat down and we were watching a little show together. And there was this scene, even, this secular show where one uh, there's only so much medicine that's available. There's only one, one, uh, one uh, shot left. There's these two ladies in need of it. And the one surrenders her life for the sake of the other and tells the doctor, go ahead and give it to her. And we think, that's amazing. Because it's a, it's a glimpse of the gospel. It is a glimpse of love. It, we, we see in self-givingness. We see in self-sacrifice. We see in one who bears his neck for death. We see something that is glorious. We see something that is not just... Um, it, it's not just aspirational. It is something that is beyond self. And we love it. Yeah, when it's asked of us, we don't love it too much. But when we see it actualized, when we see one that gives his life for another, we see something that is glorious. And Jesus says that it is that grain of wheat that does fall to the ground and surrender its life unto death. It is that grain of wheat that will bear fruit. That will produce much grain. He says in verse 25, He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world, he who considers his life in this world to be of nothing, will keep it for eternal life. It's interesting that in verse 26 when he says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where is he going? He's headed to Jerusalem for a cross. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father, him my Father, will honor. Just as the Father honored His Son Jesus for giving His life for the sake of the world, Paul picks up that theme in Philippians chapter 2. It's because Jesus emptied Himself. As Wesley said, He emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. It is in seeing that self-sacrificial offering of the Son that the Father responds by giving Him the name that is above every name. And at that name, the text tells us, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Jesus says, His hour has come to be glorified. His hour has come to offer Himself as a sacrifice for the world's behalf. If you and I want to bear fruit in our lives, meaningful fruit, lasting fruit, fruit for eternity, then we are called to give ourselves. Not give our things, not give our stuff, give ourselves. Because the fruit-bearing Christian life is not just a life that is dead, 
It's not just a life that is sacrificial. It is a life that is replicating. How does the church evangelize the world? It gets beyond itself. It lives for the sake of the world. How does a congregation reach its friends, its neighbors, its co-workers? It dies. It sacrifices. It gives of itself. It lives for the sake of others. It is that kind of life that will be replicated. It is that kind of life that will give birth to other life. When we die, when we give of ourselves, we provide the opportunity for others to come to know the God who died and who gave Himself. See, we think of fruit bearing as being something that is oriented toward having an apple to eat. Having squash to cook up with some onions and some oil with salt and pepper and have a nice side for a meal. That's what I've been praying for with our garden. Lord, I just want a couple of meals of squash. I don't like tomatoes. we got tomatoes coming out of our ears. Uh, the kids are loving them. Lindsay likes tomatoes. But when we think of fruit bearing, we think of fruit bearing. We think of that fruit. Something that we can consume. But the ultimate goal of an apple tree is not the apple. Let me repeat. The ultimate goal of an apple tree is not an apple. The ultimate goal of an apple tree is found within the apple. Seeds. Seeds that produce more apple trees. They can produce more apples with seeds. They can produce more apple trees. God has littered throughout all of nature this idea of sacrifice and death so that replication can take place. This idea of giving of oneself for the sake of others so that others might then find life. We get aggravated when you've got the oak tree and the acorns are falling and you got the oak trees popping up all over the place and they're popping up over in the, the flower beds and you're thinking, the flower bed's not even under the oak tree. What in the world? But the acorns are falling and the squirrels are getting after them and some of them are getting over into the flower beds and the oak trees are springing up and they're choking out you know, all the, the moisture that, that we need for our daisies or lilies. But that's what sacrifice, that is what dying, that is what seeds, that is what replication is all about. God's goal for the Christian, God's goal for your life and mine, is not that our faith would simply mature. It's not just so that we can bear a little bit of fruit in our lives and feel good about ourselves and recognize how, how God's been working in our lives. 
But God's goal for you and me is the replication of our faith. It's not just its strengthening. It's not just its endurance. It's so that our faith can be replicated into the lives of others. We come to Christ. We confess. We repent. We get into involved in a small group. We, we start building Christian friendships and relationships. And we get a little bit down the road and we see God's working in our lives and we've been reading the Scriptures and suddenly our eyes have kind of been opened and we see God through His Spirit bearing fruit in our lives and we think, man, yeah, this is what the Christian life is all about. No, it's not. The Christian life is all about others being drawn in. Because we ourselves have been drawn in through others. Far too often, our faith is grossly short-sighted. Far too often, our faith is even self-centered. I ran across a quote this week. I thought it was, I thought it was poignant and pithy. I want to share it with you. I ran across this short little line that said, Life originates in the womb of death. Life originates in the womb of death. It is in our dying to ourselves, in our sacrificing ourselves, giving ourselves to others, that God is able to take that offering of self and He's able to replicate what He's done in our lives into the lives of others. This is, so to speak, the end game. I, I've been sharing for the last several weeks about this idea of bearing fruit and getting roots down in our lives so we can be fruitful. We've looked at the fruit of the Spirit and we've looked at, uh, you know, last week uh, even the, the transcendental virtues, faith, love, and hope. We've been looking at those things that God is wanting to work into our lives, those, those signs that He's given us life, those signs that our lives have become healthy in Him. But this really is what it's all about. It's about others. It's not about you and me. When we were on the outs, it was about you and me. But as Paul told the Ephesians, God made us who weren't a people, a people. As Peter also said in his epistles, we once, we once weren't his people, and He made us to be His people. He brought us in, brought us near, drew us in by the blood of Jesus, by that self-giving death. He brought new life to us. And now it's no longer about us. And spoiled kids don't like to hear that. You mean it's not about me? The Gospel is always turning our eyes outward. And if we will allow it, the gospel is always turning our hearts outward. 
Because the deepest, darkest, most depraved thing we can find in life is not a black hole in space. It is the black hole of a heart that has become a vacuum. Jesus will have none of that. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. I think our responses to him ought to be fairly well self-evident. But I want you to look at the back of your communication card and notice also on the back of your bulletin you have the same responses there. Please hang on to your bulletin. Um, makes a good bookmark. Makes a good reminder for this time of worship and commitment that you've made to God. It also, differently this week, for the first time ever, gives you a place where you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. But I want you to drop off your communication card after you've put your response on there in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary. This will is another way that will enable me to be more particular in my prayers on your behalf. The gospel calls us to come and die. And some of us need to say, you know what? It may be an archaic idea, but it's biblical truth. We must come and die to self. Until we die to self, we will never live for others. Until we die to self, our motives will always be antithetical to the gospel. Something a little bit more specifically would be that I intend to give myself to others. I intend to live for others. I intend to give of my time, give of my energies, give of my patience, even give of my reputation for others. Jesus was known as one who hung out with prostitutes and tax collecting thieves. He held nothing. Not his life, not his reputation, not his rights or opportunities in life. He gave of himself and we are called to do the same. And then even more specifically, I wonder if you would be courageous enough to say, you know what, I need to share Christ with someone else. Maybe not by you know, preaching a three-point sermon to them. Maybe not by you know, telling them they're going to bust hell's gates wide open. But I need to find a way to share my faith in Christ with someone else.
perhaps you can think of someone specifically. As we prayerfully consider our response to God's call to us, let's pray that His Spirit would have the freedom to speak to us and that we would have the clarity of ear to hear Him and the courage of heart to embrace His call. Let's pray.